This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The poverty rate in America jumped 12.4% in 2022. That's according to new data out this week from the U.S. Census Bureau. And it's hitting kids and older adults particularly hard. Now, when you think about it, the numbers make sense. We all know that prices rose sharply last year. And while inflation has been easing recently, we are not out of the woods yet. We also saw that many federal aid programs established during the pandemic scaled back last year. So here to discuss the numbers and more importantly, how to turn them around, we've got three great panelists. Damon Jones is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where he conducts research on public finance, household finance, and labor economics. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for having me. Rami Nashashibi is executive director of Iman. That's the Inner City Muslim Action Network. Good to have you back, Rami. Hey, peace, Sasha. And Audra Wilson is here, president and CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. Good to finally meet you in person, Audra. Yes, it's great to meet you. Professor Jones, we'll start with you. Uh, as I mentioned, that 12.4% jump in the poverty rate last year. What does that mean? Put it in context for us and tell us how significant of a rise that is. Yeah, so um, to be to be specific, in 2021, so the, these data are looking back one year. So in 2021, um, you know, there's different measures of poverty, but the poverty rate was at 7.8%, the supplemental poverty measure, which is a good robust measure, and it is now up to 12.4% this year. Um, and so to put it in perspective, this on record, this is the largest increase that um, we've seen. Um, it is a, a significant jump, and, and we know going from 2020 to 2021, we had a significant drop. And so this, if you look on the data, you see nothing like what happened in the last couple of years, a big drop and then a return back to where we were. Um, and it's especially acute for children. So the mm. biggest uh, uh, jumps in poverty are among children. Yeah. And, you know, that's related to, like you said, policies like the child tax credit, which was extended in 2021. And then that extension expired. Um, and then you also see that um, among children, the jumps are most significant for black and Hispanic children and especially the data is a little more noisy, but uh, American Indian, Alaska Native, um, their numbers went from about 7% mm-hmm. to about 26%. And we'll dig more into that, uh, Professor. I want to get a quick, before we move any further, clear definition of poverty, right? Because I understand it's being tracked in different ways, right? And and I want to know the best way to assess whether someone is experiencing poverty. What do you say? Yeah, so there's the official poverty measure that we've been having since the 1960s. They just look at how much cash you have and they see if you um, have at least three times as much as the minimum amount to basically have enough food to, to survive. And that's a number that we can track across history. But a lot of people will turn to what's called a supplemental po- po- poverty measure. Mm-hmm. And um, that just includes other sources of income like are you paying uh, taxes? Are you getting tax credits? Um, they also account for food clothing, utility and shelter costs and um, health costs, health care costs. Um, and so that's the, the one I like to look at um, best. And, and there there's a threshold. Um, is your income above or below that threshold? And then it adjusts for the size of your family. Mm. And before we hear from the others, walk us through some of the reasons that we're seeing these increases we're talking about. Yeah, the um, some of the key drivers are that in 2021, you know, and the pandemic's been a very unique period. Um, one of the big uh, contrib- 
uh, things contributing to that were uh, federal um, assistance. So there was the economic impact payments, also known as STEMIs. Yes. Um, and then there was the child tax credit, which was extended. Um, and so for each child, um, there was up to $3,600 a year. Mm-hmm. And so people were getting a monthly payment during the year. Um, and, um, and that expired, as you know, mm-hmm. at the end of 2021. So those are two uh, major uh, factors that are driving those um, poverty numbers. Absolutely. Rami, let's bring you in here. Your organization, the Inner City Muslim Action Network, You've got all sorts of programs that are about giving people and families opportunities. Mm -hmm. So before we get into details of those, your reaction to these numbers that the professor is so eloquently spitting out here. Right. It's it's bad. Yeah, it is. And when you think about the larger national story, I think the way we concretize that in urban settings like Chicago is very critical. And the way we think about um, how to respond to this. I mean, we have seen, uh, I was, I was, you know, reading through the memoirs of King and and the last book that he wrote, Where Do We Go From Here? And he was 55 years ago talking about some profound economic disparities in the city that continue to persist. I mean, we have the largest life expectancy gap out of 500 urban centers between Inglewood and Streeterville of 32 years. We have poverty rates uh, in 2016. Those living in extreme poverty, the Chicago Tribune reported, rose by over 374%. And, you know, oftentimes we talk about violence. We talk about numbers associated with violence, often devoid from a real conversation about persistent extreme poverty in pockets that have been with us for now decades. And so the way I think we, my first reaction is, a lot of this is about, I think, doubling down on the types of investments we saw over the last few years. I mean, we have proven that we know how to actually reduce poverty, that we can invest, we can uh, deal with the generational uh, actual, if you will, Mm -hmm. theft of billions of dollars of uh, of wealth opportunities in in black communities like on on the South Side. What do you think about the data showing that as the professor pointed out, children and, and people over 65 are feeling this increase disproportionately. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It, I think it's only, it really adds insult to injury that, you know, again, the communities that we have known that have been the most vulnerable for decades still remain those communities and within those communities, the most marginal and the most vulnerable populations, the young, uh, young children and those who are the elderly, um, I, and that just, I think, align with everything that community organizations yeah. like ours confront on a daily basis. Let's bring you in, Audra. Your initial thoughts, first of all, on, on this this new reality that we're talking about, right? Higher poverty after the pandemic and on the tail end of rampant inflation. Absolutely. And I'm going to echo my, my colleagues, but I will say this is not surprising um, to anti-poverty advocates, to 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 anyone who is, is invested in this, but it's very disheartening. And what I've seen is just really a moving back to the status quo. And this is something that many of us as advocates, when we saw this this window with COVID, this moment that everyone was essential and we were lauding these essential workers, mm-hmm. these people who's, the, the primary workers who we've constantly been fighting um, for economic justice, fighting for people to come out of the shadows, we have this opportunity now with COVID and relying upon them to really expose the, 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 the breadth of issues that they were dealing with. And now I'm seeing that we have reverted back 
um, which is what we have feared. We reverted back to those racially tinged tropes of people who are living in poverty and suggesting that people need to be incentivized to work. Um, and what we what we really see now is COVID exposed the depths of the inequity that that workers were facing, from um, gig workers, domestic workers, and the challenges that they had, um, tipped workers, um, and the challenges that they were experiencing when the restaurant industry itself was almost decimated with people staying at home. Right. So we I think we have lost that moment in time to really be able to 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 mobilize. And as as Rami just mentioned, we know for a fact that when you have the economic stimulus. When you have these investments with the American Rescue Plan, we were able to see dips in child poverty significant, mm-hmm. especially because knowing that in the United States, that among our, our developed countries, that our rates of child poverty are, yeah. are unconscionable in comparison to our, our, I mean, our peers. So many factors in people's lives can yes. can lead a person or a family to dip, as you mentioned, uh, under the poverty line. In, in recent years, many people who are working to address poverty, well, they talk about economic justice. What does that mean to you when I say that? Economic justice basically is the ability for people to be able to to work at a, a job that is safe, uh, a job that has a livable wage, a job that allows them to have paid time off and time up when they're sick, um, and to be able to support their families. And this is something that every American should be able to do. There's no reason why individuals should have to work two or three jobs. There's no reason why people should not have to be able to take off if they are sick. And using, again, the pandemic as a backdrop to think that the folks who were on the front lines and exposed to the virus most directly Mm -hmm. were oftentimes the individuals who did not have access to paid time off or they did not have access to time off to be able to help their children who were being schooled at home and they couldn't take the time off that many of us in salary positions had a luxury, right. quite frankly, to be able to do. Professor, that idea of economic justice, uh, it, it says that the economy will work better if the system is uh, more equitable and fairer. Walk us through the steps. What steps could the federal government take to actually make that happen? Well, I think um, to echo what Audra was saying, in the labor market, um, you know, making sure that workers you know, have the rights, that their rights are protected to collectively bargain mm-hmm. to to get the types of jobs that, um, you know, they deserve in terms of good pay and good quality jobs. Um, and the federal government can support that or um, work against that effort. And so you want to see policies that are removing those barriers for people to, you know, use their right to, mm-hmm. to collectively bargain. And, and, you know, I think the other thing is a good safety net and that child tax credit was a part of that safety net. So um, for people who fall down the income ladder, was there to catch them? And then in terms of justice as well, how much um, does I mean, tax... If that had been permanent, do you think we'd be having this conversation today? About po- about the poverty rate? No, I think it would have I think it would have stayed down. There's definitely a discussion about inflation um, and how what are the causes of inflation, um, how that has factored into people's experience recently and where it's headed. But uh, I think that I don't think that we did have this rebound. Like uh, Audra said, that was very predictable. The, the last thing I will say was federal tax policy can play a role in uh, how much wealth is passed across generations. Um, and currently um, you can preserve a lot of wealth and um, dodge a lot of taxes in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um based on some of the loopholes that we have in our tax system. And you know a lot about these um, these safety nets because you, you've conducted research on that universal uh, basic income program, which we have, I guess, several of them right now in our area. 
Yeah, I think this is a great active area of research. Um, one of the things I looked at was in Alaska, where every year they have a, a dividend that's paid to every resident of about a thousand to two thousand dollars. And um, you know, we did some research on the labor market, and um, you know, we didn't find strong evidence that that was, you know, discouraging people from working um, to the best of our you know ability to yeah. try to determine that. Uh, Rami, we know poverty leads to food insecurity. Uh, there's a story um, uh, on this jump in the poverty rate in the New York Times, and in it they talk to Margaret O'Connor. She runs Common Pantry. That's a small food bank on the north side of Chicago. Here's what she said, quote, People are working hard. They're just not making ends meet. The cost of living is too much. She cited rent as a major cost, and she said that you know people have been flocking to the pantry. Yep. Yeah, you know, and yesterday, in fact, we spent uh, a good day um, at the Chicago Food Depository. We also run uh, a, a depository alongside a, a dynamic fresh market that's trying to both employ people with living wages from the community and mm-hmm. provide a dynamic and dignified access not only to uh, food but healthy food uh, in neighborhoods like Inglewood. And I think the relationship between food insecurity, violence, housing, it's all interwoven into this larger, complicated you know, uh, picture. However complicated it may be, I do think in a city like Chicago, we have seen real pathways for solutions. And I think that's the sometimes frustrating part of this conversation. What are you referring to? Well, I think, you know, we know that if we take the framework for economic justice, starting with the uh, understanding that there has been a generational capital disinvestment from neighborhoods and realize that both from philanthropy, public and private sector commitments have to be more than just short-term episodic interventions. And if we start getting folks to realize that this is a 25-year commitment, we can see the turnaround. We've seen it in neighborhoods like the ones that we're working in. We see folks that if you start investing in resources for food, housing, job training, uh, interventions, concentrated interventions, that you begin to see families who would otherwise uh, be standing in front of lines for food pantries being supported through real viable long-term trajectories that get them out of poverty in ways that can be sustainable. We know those solutions work. We just have to have the political, moral courage and will to sustain it beyond uh, a particular headline. Yeah, Audra, you've, uh, you've served on the Illinois Commission on Poverty Elimination and Economic Security and the Illinois Commission to End Hunger. I mean, you've been doing this work, right? Talk, talk more about the policy and advocacy work that the Shriver Center is doing too, to to meet the organization's goal. I was looking at your website. It says, you know, right on, right up front, building a future free from poverty and racism. What goes into that? <laughs> Pretty ambitious, huh? <laughs> That's why I'm working with my colleagues. So it's a, a lot of what we've been saying right now. And one thing I just want to elevate is that, and Rami's mentioned this, there is no shortage of of solutions and ideas and suggestions and things that have been proven to work, this is a matter of will. Um, because there's absolutely no excuse for the situation in which we find ourselves. We know that there, this has been highly politicized. We are still villainizing a lot of people who are living in poverty. And so that's sometimes a big challenge for us. So at the Schreiber Center, obviously, we've been trying to be as responsible as responsive as possible, especially because as we're emerging from this pandemic, mm-hmm. we are in a new landscape right now. We, we're we not even, when I say going back to the status quo, it's even different than that because there's still things that we are seeing right now 
that are, are, are residual impact from the pandemic. So, for example, as we do a lot of work in housing, we're dealing with situations where people who had foreclosure filings against them, eviction filings based off of foreclosures, based off of not having enough income, who now are being penalized as they've gotten back on their feet to be able to find new housing because there is a, a record of there being an eviction having been filed, whether or not they were actually evicted. So these are some of the residual impacts that we are experiencing right now for folks who have just emerged from the pandemic. And even in the report where it says things like, well, wages now have stabilized or they're rising or they were people were sort of now bargaining more for more money and demanding more money. As we've all said, when inflation has, was out of control and when food prices and housing prices and health care prices were rising at a rate higher than that of increased wages, you were still finding, finding people are not feeling the impact of any increased wages mm. and are even struggling more than they were before. So this is where our priority has been to really try to be as responsive as, as we need to be and also keeping our finger on the pulse of sort of the residual impacts that we are still experiencing from the pandemic and that we will continue to experience for the next few years. Professor, I, I want to hear from you. I mean, you're hearing all of this, right? We, we're also hearing about um, high rent, high food prices. Right now we know gas prices. I mean, they're still up, if you ask me. Uh, you've done specific research on household finance, which I found really interesting. So my first question there is what, what costs you would say are, are causing the biggest burden for people right now? Or is it the combination of everything? Well, um, you know, some of the biggest expenditures are going to be where you feel the most um, uh, when you have inflation. So, you know, housing is going to be a major issue. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that are affecting fuel prices. There's, you know, conflict, global conflict, and other types of things that are going to cause fuel price prices to fluctuate. Which we um, have no control over. Well, we do. Our reliance on fuel uh, and, you know, fossil fuels, you know, also determines how exposed we are to, to, to those True. costs. Um, so there are some things we can do there. Uh, one thing I do want to say about the recent trends is there's been so many things happening at the same time. There was the pandemic. There were these very unique federal policies. There is inflation, which erodes any type of benefits that you've been seeing. Mm -hmm. um, in the labor market, which is not the whole story, there actually have been some positive uh, stories. And, and, and so inflation has been, prices have been growing. Wages have been growing faster for middle and lower wage jobs than for higher wage jobs over the last year mm -hmm. or two. Um, and so actually... Um, in terms of whose wages have kept up with inflation the most, uh, which hasn't historically always been the case, lower wage jobs, uh, jobs in the middle of the wage distribution have been able to keep up more than higher wage jobs. Um, and so you actually see the, the, the real income, which is your income adjusted for those costs, decreased in 2022. And it was driven among white non-Hispanic um, workers, not workers of color. And that's maybe surprising, and that's because there's been more growth at the bottom of the, the income distribution. Once this inflation hopefully, you know, slows down, mm -hmm. um, can we continue to have these gains in the job market? Can we continue to have what's called a tight job market where um, workers have a lot of choice and workers have the ability to climb the ladder, switch jobs to higher paying jobs? There were a lot of 
promising um, trends, mm-hmm. but they've been wrapped in other things that have been going on, including inflation. And so um, hopefully we can continue that trend yeah. uh, on the other side of inflation. You're nodding there, Audra. You agree? Yes. And, and I'm learning, too. <laughs> and this is what op- I'm optimistic about that. But again, still feeling the this is one of those things that there's the technical part of this and the, and wages have been rising and, and acknowledging that, but then still how people are feeling this. And and that's something that sometimes that's what you're hearing more about, that they cannot feel those benefits. Um, but you did say something earlier, Professor, and I think it's important that when we're thinking about policies um, and we're talking about, for example, expanding it to the child tax credit, these other sorts of reliefs. We need to be looking at some other tools to advance economic security, including, as we mentioned before, guaranteed income, which is a really important supplement to families that allows them to use the money in a way mm-hmm. that makes most sense for their families. And they're not mandated to put it in places that aren't beneficial to individuals. Um, and obviously improvements in the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit, strengthening SNAP, mm-hmm. um, which are our, our food program or food stamps, and of course, um, modernizing unemployment insurance. There's a lots of things that have come out of the, the rescue plan that we really need to be talking about making permanent because we know, as Rami has mentioned, um, and as, as Professor has mentioned, the, they make a difference. Yeah. So, Rami, we've been talking a lot about policy mm-hmm. and programs. I want to hear your advice for the person out there that's listening to us and and wants to help alleviate poverty, mm-hmm. whether it's in their neighborhood or in this region, because it can be overwhelming to know where to even start. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, again, you, in, in the top of the program, you talked about a conversation, you ha- or a quote from someone that operates a food pantry on the north side. Um one of the things I found really impressive uh, and uh, something that I think gives me hope is, you know, the one of the largest food banks in the, in the country is operated here, uh, the Chicago Food Depository. And recently they had a, a they made a significant change in their mission statement that now talks about getting to the root cause of poverty. And so that all of the volunteers that go to the food depository and pack bags before they start packing bags Mm -hmm. and before they start delivering, they start a real conversations about what are some of the root causes of poverty and how as a society can we remain committed to the type of long-term transformation of those root causes. And I think um, that may sound theoretical sometimes, but I think it's real. How do we uh, as private citizens, how do we, uh, as those that sit on boards in philanthropies, how do those in the private public sector, we say major commitments from this administration, five-year plans that are very promising, they, that are very hopeful, but that are not going to necessarily go anywhere until and unless private sector, public sector, the philanthropic sector, and organizers on the ground can use a moment like this yeah. in a city like Chicago to demonstrate that we can weather the storm of one particular report and have a long-term bold Marshall Plan type commitment to what it means to be rebuilding our neighborhoods. So those that have been in generational cycles of poverty have a pathway out. And I think as a community, as a city, if we get committed to that vision yeah. and uh, and and don't retreat from it, um, I think that's a that's one real major Uh, I think, positive, hopefully, contribution we can make, not only for the city, but for the country. We could certainly keep going, but we do have to leave it there. We've been talking about this jump in the poverty rate and how Chicago can meet the challenge 
of getting that number back in check. Our guests, Rami Nashashibi from the Inner City Muslim Action Network, Audra Wilson from the Shriver Center for Poverty Law, and Damon Jones from the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Thank you all so much.